Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, listeners, first show of the new year. Um, I think everybody was excited around New Year's Eve. I can't tell you how many uh, polite white liberals made some sort of comment about, you know, oh, it's 2021's coming. Say goodbye to 2020. Say goodbye to Trump. All is in fact well. Uh, and then uh, and then I don't know. I mean, we were talking before the show. I guess there's some stuff that's been going on in America. I I actually am pretty unplugged, and most people know that. I don't really read the news or stay up on stuff, so maybe uh, our guest and my co-host can fill us in. But uh, no, in all seriousness, there's been an enormous amount of madness. We'll touch on some of the current events surrounding, uh, you know, the maelstrom at the Capitol, the you know Biden transition, the civil military stuff. But uh, actually, our our guest today. Uh, leading off our new year was going to be our guest really right at the end of last year. And uh, as some of you may have seen me on his park media show a few months back, which was, was super cool. Um, And it was actually happening right around the same time uh, that, you know, that Vince, Vincent Emanuele, our guest was doing like two shows, I believe with Oliver Stone. And oddly enough, you know, we kind of started, you know, chatting in a, in a group thread about just, you know, I think we, he realized that we had some things in common and uh, it was a great show. So um, we're really happy to have Vince on. And for, for those who don't know, and we'll have it in the show notes, like always just the basics, right. The on paper stuff and, and we'll get into some deeper stuff Uh, bio on Vince. Right. So he was in the Marine Corps uh, from 2002 to 2006 enlisted, uh, after his second combat deployment to Iraq in the bad old days, right, as they say, uh, he refused orders for a third deployment and joined Iraq veterans against the war, uh, kind of at the ground level, right, when this was a relatively new organization. And, uh, and then in 2008, he, he testifies to the U.S. Congress about ROE, rules of engagement, torture, and, and war crimes, uh, which really harkened back to kind of an earlier era during the Vietnam time, which we'll, we'll talk about. And, uh, in general, you know, Vince's story has been featured in some documentary films such as We Are Many and On the Bridge. Uh, he is the co-founder of Park Media or Political Arts Roots Culture, uh, a community cultural center located in Michigan City, Indiana. And we'll have to uh, talk a little bit about Indiana. I know you're from the south side of Chicago, I believe. Uh, my best friend's from Muncie, which I feel like is a pretty real indiana moment so anyway enough of all that vince thanks for coming on thanks for having me as i appreciate it well i i knew that you needed to come over to uh forts on a hill and do this with us after i did your show uh i you know i do 
good decent amount of them and then sometimes like you just kind of connect with the person and you know i don't know maybe it's because you use curse words and talk like i do when i've had a beer you know but you know the the combination of kind of like the the lowbrow highbrow and the uh, intellectualism and then the earthiness was was kind of cool and i enjoyed it on the show uh we were saying or i was saying to you right before that you know sometimes you get kind of bored telling the same journey story uh, to new audiences. But the truth is, while there's overlap, there's some new people. So, you know, I, I want to lead off by asking you to kind of tell your story. And it's totally up to you how you do it. And, and I don't ever really prep anybody. But I mean, like real, like kind of, if you don't mind, like kind of real deal in terms of like where you came from and 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 even your early sort of background leading in. And because that interests me, I'm a backstory guy. And, uh, and maybe from there, we'll just kind of see where it goes. That sounds good to me. I mean, I think... Uh, how would I frame this? Look, I consider myself to be like a very average American type of guy who grew up in a very average sort of uh, Midwestern Rust Belt context. My whole family is from the former Yugoslavia and Italy. They migrated here either before, right before, or during and after World War I. So my family came to New York, then to Chicago. Everybody ended up working in the steel mills and on the railroads all union iron workers and steel workers. Uh, a lot of them worked on the south side of Chicago, Republic Steel and Wisconsin Steel. And so, yeah, that's like the background, you know, families from the southeast side of Chicago, everybody's uh, union, blue collar workers, immigrants. And my grandfather, uh, he served in World War II. Uh, he was an infantryman, uh, fought in Anzio, ended up with two Purple Hearts, uh, one with a V for Valor. Uh, my dad served in the army during Vietnam, uh, but didn't go overseas. He was one of the lucky ones. They sent him to uh, Western Germany. So he was like skiing in the Alps and hanging out with Italian and French women uh, while his friends were unfortunately fighting and dying in Vietnam. But he learned a lot from that. And so like when I was younger as a, as a child, you know, he, he would allow us to kind of like play with army stuff and all that kind of stuff. But he, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I was going to say that he tried to talk me out of joining. So I guess the question is, why would I want to join? Look, man, I was not interested in school whatsoever. I was like a rambunctious little shithead kid who loved to play sports and go to parties and smoke pot. And that was pretty much the three things I cared most about as a child. So K through 12 for me, was a lot of ditching class, getting kicked out of school, detentions, and all the rest. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. So I wasn't academically or intellectually interested whatsoever as a child. Um, by the time I was a senior in high school, and you know, grew up like I'm sure most of you guys grew up. I mean, I grew up watching Rambo and uh, Commando and any Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Chuck Norris, uh, Sylvester Stallone movie that was available. I mean, like, my brother and I probably watched the movie Navy Seals like a thousand times until the VHS tape broke. Um, that's like, you know, I think really typical for kids who grew up in the United States in the 80s and 90s. And I think it's even more typical probably for kids who grew up in like a working class background, particularly in the Midwest. So, you know, that's kind of the context as a high school student. Uh, didn't know what I wanted to do by the time I was a senior in high school was hoping to maybe play division three baseball somewhere, but my grades were so screwed up that that was even a, a difficult. And then in my senior year, 
I fractured my wrist sliding into second base and sat around for like three or four months with a cast on just kind of wondering what the hell am I going to do with myself? All of my friends knew they were going to university or they were, they knew they were going into the unions. Uh, and I wasn't interested in either, you know, my dad was a union iron worker and he got injured when I was a young kid. So 1994, he was on a scaffolding that collapsed. Uh, he broke his neck, his back, his shoulders, hips. I mean, he was in and out of surgical procedures for about a year, uh, then spent another two years at home in a wheelchair. And then from that to a halo and a walker and from a walker and a halo to a cane by the time I was 17, 18. So my childhood was uh, essentially me being the man of the house and taking care of all the duties that he would have taken care of. Uh, because my mother was taking care of him. So I was taking care of my brother, helping my mom take care of my dad. And in hindsight, I think that had a lot to do with, uh, you know, rejecting school and not being interested. Like I was forced to grow up, I think, at a young age and wasn't interested in school. And I think my way of like lashing out was, you know, partying and all the rest. So by the time I'm a senior, I break my wrist. I don't know what the hell I want to do. Didn't want to go work in the steel mills or as an iron worker because I saw a lot of my dad's friends busted up, injured, uh, beaten down from 30, 40 years working next to a blast furnace. Um, so that didn't interest me. I obviously didn't have the grades to go to school. I barely graduated high school. I think I had like a 1.9 uh, GPA by the time I left. So it was like the lowest I could get for graduating. And I was in great shape, man, and grew up with that militarism and figured why not, you know, walk down to the Marine Corps recruit station and uh, straight up told him I wanted to be in the infantry. The guy's eyes lit up. He was like, holy shit, I don't even have to convince you to be a dummy. Like, you're going to be a dummy on your own. Um, and, you know, so I was like, yeah, I want to be in the infantry. Send me. Let's go. Uh, this was summer of 2002. So uh, September 16th, 2002, I left for Marine Corps boot camp. And that was that. My friends went to college. My dad tried to talk me out of it, but, you know, I was 18 and he was 50 something years old and I knew better. And, uh, you know, I probably never forget his words, which was, you know, basically telling me in short that I was about to go fight another Vietnam uh, and that it wasn't worth it. And I had no idea what I was doing. So, of course, those were words that rang through my head uh, for the four years I was in the Marine Corps. So in any case, I hope not to ramble too much, but that's sort of the background, I guess, of, you know, where I came from and how I ended up uh, joining the Marine Corps. Uh, it's interesting hearing you, you know, describe it. I, I, I know that personally it's almost like insufferable, but I sort of like communicate through the illusion of like uh, films and, you know, music and stuff. And as you were describing some of like this family background, and I know it's a bit of a different area. I was thinking like, geez, this is, this is like, some version of deer hunter a little bit you know like that movie where you know these guys are Western they shot it 40 miles away uh dan did they really yeah they oh, shot wow. that movie 40 miles away from our house in east chicago indiana yep oh so that's i did not know that because i know it takes place in like clareton pennsylvania or something like that but i knew they didn't film it there but i mean it's, it's probably instructive that they filmed it so close to you um and when you're talking about the the movies and stuff i've been thinking a lot about kind of like the Reagan era film, you know, that was made and how it was like the ultimate sanitization of, of war, right? In a certain sense, uh, whether it's Top Gun or, or or Navy SEALs, which, you know, I think the strong point of Navy SEALs is the, you know, bumper cars and the golf carts or whatever they were doing, <laughs> polo. 
it's pretty good. Like that's the, the one boys are back in that town. <laughs> right. That's what saves it. But <laughs> anyway, enough of all, but, but outside of that. So, I mean, so you, you join the infantry. It's, you know, it's, it's soon after nine 11, but it's before the Iraq war. And I don't know, like, I, I think that the context of that temporarily matters. Maybe you can kind of just, you know, in, in, in whatever detail or, or whatever kind of inflection at this point, looking back, uh, from from Paris Island, did you go to Paris Island or did you go to San Diego? No, MCRD San Diego. Okay, so you know, so from boot camp to Iraq to refusing, right, a second, a third deployment. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things going on, but you know, the broad strokes of that development. You know, if maybe you can explain some of that. I'm sure you've done it a lot, but it really does interest me. Yeah, I. So I get to boot camp. I was surprised that a lot of the guys I was around were shitbags, to be honest with you. Um, I got to boot camp in excellent shape and expected most of the other Marines that I would encounter in boot camp to be like, you know, chiseled jaw, sort of upright, stoic individuals who had been like, you know, lifting weights and like running their whole life is kind of like, I don't know why I had this in my head, but this is like what I imagined. So I get to boot camp. And, you know, the guy next to me is like six foot four, like 300 pounds. And the guy to the left of me is like five foot two, 120 pounds. And I'm looking around and I'm going, oh, wow. Like at that point, and there's a great book. I'm trying to think of what the name of it is. Damn it. I'm going to forget. It's uh, published by Verso. But nonetheless, it's about like the military sort of recruiting, like, you know, ex-cons, people who are going to go to jail. And there was like a lot of those cats in in our uh, platoon for boot camp. Like I met a lot of guys who were like, yeah, I had to do this or else I was going to go to jail or like I, you know, I had to get out of this situation or that situation. And then there were, of course, those who were just simply pumped up to be there because of 9-11. I kind of found myself somewhere oscillating in between. I wasn't really um, infused with a sense of patriotism post 9-11. Uh, but I also, you know, at the same time, didn't want to kind of fall into the kind of crap that was going on in our area, you know, just people hanging out and doing small town stuff, getting into trouble. So I was kind of surprised at that. And then I was surprised we had a drill instructor who was routinely bringing his child into the, um, you know, into our, uh, our bunkhouse, our squad bay. And wow. I, I, he like stopped one night and he like, called like a formation in like the middle of the night we're like all sitting in the squad bay and he just went on this like hour-long rant about how women were fucked up and his ex-wife fucked him over and this and that we're gonna learn about life and all this stuff and I just at that moment was like what the hell is going on this guy's supposed to be like the top drill instructor we have and he's like a total mess bringing his kid in here, talking about his wife to all these young recruits. And it was just a very surreal moment where I was like, what in the fuck kind of institution am I getting involved with? Like, obviously, this isn't producing the kind of human beings uh, that were portrayed, say, in the movies or all the bullshit propaganda that I was fed as a kid. Uh, so that was like my first alarm bell started to go off during boot camp. Like, what is this institution? How does it function? And the people who are involved actually aren't. Um, like the best of the best. It's actually a lot of guys who just wanted to get out of whatever situation they were in and they're there, you know. Um, I graduated boot camp in December of 2002 and then uh, took a long break. We kind of lucked out uh, because we went in September. We ended in the middle of December and they weren't starting the next 
uh, school of infantry training courses until January. So I got to go home for a couple of weeks, talk with my friends who were home from university, immediately realized I was making mistakes because they were telling me about all the fun parties and sex and drugs they were doing. And I was telling them about how wonderful it was to shit next to 30 guys at the same time in the morning. And, you know, it's like not a political critique, but just like a life critique. I was like, oh, fuck, like, what did I decide to do? Um, got to the School of Infantry in January. And again, we had uh, sergeants and corporals in charge of us who were going through drug and alcohol problems, uh, going through divorces. And it just raised more and more alarm bells to me, not to mention, of course, the equipment we were using in the School of Infantry was like so antiquated and crappy that I just remember thinking to myself, my God, like, is this the kind of equipment we're going to go to war with? And are these the type of guys that we're going to go to war with? You know, even though it was hammered into our head that we were all heading to war, um, it didn't seem to resonate on the level of like, you know, people's mentality or this, this idea that like we're gearing up for this big battle. Um, in any case, School of Infantry ends right at the same time that the initial invasion is kicking off. So School of Infantry from January 2 until February 2, eight weeks. And then we kind of hung around for a while at a place called Camp Margarita in uh, Camp Pendleton, which sounds like a really nice place, but it was just shitty old squad bays uh, with Constantina wire all over the place. Um, and then we ended up in Iraq for the initial invasion. And yeah, uh, back then it was, you know, mop, mop level four walking around with NBC gear that didn't work and uh, drinking straws that didn't work. And I just remember thinking to myself, if they do have chemical weapons, we half of us are going to die because our equipment is, is not functional. Um, so all of that seemed pretty absurd to me uh, as we were deploying and then just taking in, you know, an AAV with 30 people packed into it uh, upwards towards Baghdad. And then we finally settled in, in uh, Najaf. And once that, this was like now May, June timeframe, about the middle of May, I received a Red Cross message from home that my mother had a brain aneurysm and that she was going to die perhaps. So they sent me directly home from the combat zone, uh, Najaf to Kuwait, Kuwait to Ireland, Ireland to uh, Chicago, and then straight to Northwestern University to sit in a waiting room and wait for my mom to get done with brain surgery, which she survived, fortunately. Um, but yeah, that was also very surreal. It was a jarring experience to go from Najaf uh, to four days later sitting in a waiting room in uh, the Northwestern University uh, Medical uh, Hospital there. So during this time, I was taking care of my mother, helping my father sort of switching roles. My, fa my mother, I'm sorry, my father was now taking care of my mother and I was helping him with that. This was the summer of 2003. So my friends were coming home from university and a lot of them were studying, uh, you know, liberal, like getting liberal arts degrees. They were in the humanities and they were becoming politicized and they really started to help politicize me by exposing me to like anti-war literature, uh, people like. Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, uh, Cornell West, and others. And so I started reading Chomsky and Zinn's work during that summer, became politicized, but wasn't convinced that, nor did I have any idea that I could have like refused at that point to go back. Plus, I felt this affinity, as you guys know, towards the guys in the platoon. So I was like, man, I got to go back to the platoon. I know we're going to deploy again. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I have to go back. These are my brothers. 
So I end up back in 29 Palms in uh, the fall of 2003. We're gearing up to leave uh, in August of 2004. Back then we were doing SASO operations. So they didn't call it counterinsurgency at the time. They were calling it stability and support operations. Um, And nobody knew what the fuck that meant because during the School of Infantry and during the initial invasion, we were told, you guys are Marines. You go and destroy and kill and kill as many people as you can, destroy as much as you can. That's your job. Your job isn't to be a police force. Your job isn't to do like anything diplomatic with anyone. Like you guys are trained killers and this is what it's all about. That change, that sort of narrative and approach changed uh, going from 2003 into 2004. Uh, And I could see right then and there that we were going to have big problems because these stability and support operations, like trying to teach people how to like go to houses and talk with people or like deal with the local community, like nobody was interested in that. Everybody was like, if we're going back, I'm going back to kill people. Like I'm not going back to create democracy or whatever the fuck they're talking about in the higher ups or whatever they're talking about on TV. Like it was really clear at the lower levels that guys were going back to, you know, take names that they had just been to a deployment. They were pissed off that they were going back again. And if they were going to have to go back again, they were going to go back uh, with a pretty brutal mindset. So we end up deploying, uh, or I'm sorry, I should back up a little bit two weeks before that deployment in 2004 Uh, when we eventually ended up in Al-Qaim, a friend of mine from the platoon took me to the San Diego movie theater to see Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11. And I remember walking out of the theater and I went and found a payphone. and people will find that funny, but I went and found a payphone at the time and I called my father back home and I just said, dad, you were right. You know, I don't know what I'm doing and I know I've got to leave in two weeks. And he just said, look, you, you gotta, you probably have to go. He didn't know at the time he was worried, you know, if I left where was I going to end up in, in the brig? Was I going to get court-martialed? What the hell was going to happen? So I decided to go on that second deployment and a uh, long story short, the second deployment was a really brutal and horrific deployment. I mean, guys took it upon themselves to shoot at innocent civilians constantly. Um, to mutilate dead bodies. Uh, A lot of prisoners were tortured, a lot of beatings of prisoners, um, you know, taking pictures of dead people and all the rest. Uh, This was the kind of shit that was going on. And it was kind of the wild West. I know Henry, you were also in Al Qaim, but I will say that when we were there, not once did we see a reporter, uh, not once did we really interact or see, uh, interact with or see uh, higher ups, you know, I mean, the, like the level of officer we would interact with was at the highest, maybe a captain. And because of that lack of oversight and because, you know, people were on their second deployment and you were all the way in Western Iraq in this kind of like no man's land. um, This was sort of gearing up to the battle of Fallujah. So the idea was that we were going to like intercept weapons and fighters coming across the Syrian border and down the Euphrates to Ramadi and and, uh, Fallujah And uh, nobody knew what, you know, it was so chaotic and confusing uh, that no one really knew what the hell was going on half of the time, especially at my level, you know, as a Lance Corporal and a fire team. Um, And so anyway, during that deployment, I was doing a lot of reading as well and kind of decided towards the end of that deployment that no matter what happened when I got home, uh, I would not go on another deployment uh, no matter what. And so I came home from that second deployment went home on leave, talked to my family and friends, told them what I was going to do, came back to base, uh, 
refused to go to the armory one day, which kind of set off a chain of events uh, that ended up with me talking to the battalion sergeant major in his uh, like a little uh, office space that he had on the base. And um, that was really it. I mean, they, they, they tried to, how do I put this? At the time they were worried because morale was so low in the units that I think they were more concerned about me and I had no concept of like organizing or anything like that. So it wasn't like I, I knew, Hey, I'm going to drum up this like collective response to this. It was like, here's what I'm doing as an individual. If anybody wants to join me, let's go, you know, and a lot of guys agreed, but they, you know, for any number of reasons, weren't going to refuse orders uh, and pretty much put them through the ringer for about three months. I wrote to every member of the armed services committee in the house and the Senate on both sides of the aisle so I had about a half dozen senators and house members calling the base on my behalf um, pretty regularly for about three months, which, of course, as you guys know, the two people that the military hates more than anyone are politicians and, and journalists. Uh, There's sort of the two entities oh, yeah. that can hold them accountable. So it was like they were very nervous. They were also nervous because I kept telling them that I was going to make this a public story. At that point, we had someone... Uh, who came down and just said, look, we're going to give you a general under honorable conditions and get the fuck out of here. So I lucked out at the time. They, I think because they were sort of incoherent and didn't know what they were going to do with political dissidents, I kind of skated by. Now, the stories I've heard from veterans since coming home, a lot of them had a much different experience when they refused orders. So I can't, I mean, was it a courageous act at the time? Yes, because I didn't know what the, what the potential repercussions would be. But in the end, compared to what other people dealt with, I had a pretty easy go. I hope that wasn't too much rambling, guys. Oh, no. no. Not at all, man. Um, you, you were talking about uh, Al-Qaim, um, that uh, I lived through that same experience of that it was because it was so far from the normal military centers of power, if we want to call it that, you, you didn't see bigwigs very often. <clears throat> the the kind of px runs from the you know they have the px truck that would come around didn't come around very often food shipments were sometimes a couple days late which which left the cooks to try to you know figure out what the hell was 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 what the hell they could do to feed all these these starving guys um and the the area that area i remember getting there and and it was exceptionally quiet and I had asked some of the guys there, and they said, "Yeah, that the the some of the Marine units before uh, ours, um, I think that was a reserve unit actually that I was getting attached to there. S some of the Marine units before ours came here were exceptionally brutal. You know that they just and and there there wasn't I didn't have a lot of context beyond that. Just that you know, but the but the civilian population there, you could see that they were they were terrified and they were." pacified in a very real sense um and that was that was uh it left, it left me with a lot of questions about how we were doing all kinds of things within deployment but i had heard you talking on an interview about some of the same stuff and you had mentioned about how that some of the atrocities that you saw guys committing on your second tour were definitely related to a giant morale drop because you and all your fellow Marines knew that more combat deployments were coming down the pipe, that, you know, the Mayo 3 mission accomplished uh, by, by W, it didn't really mean anything. 
you know, is that all the all the the promises of leaders from the president on down uh, didn't didn't uh, didn't infer that in any real way. They didn't they didn't let people know that there was a chance this could go wrong. But we 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 make this assumption about why troops commit war crimes, not that I'm defending war crimes at all, but we make this assumption that there's a, a malevolent strand to it, however big or small. And it can just be like what you're talking about is that guys that, that found out I have to stay longer or I'm coming back in five months or seven months. Marine, I, I'm actually kind of grateful hearing about, you know, army tours now, because at least in between our tours, there was a little bit longer period of time to be home. And so you actually could be home a little bit, not very much because it's post-deployment, pre-deployment, you know, just, just as, as the wheel turns. But um, how, do you, how do you view that today, what you shared about your, your, former, your fellow Marines uh, being really violent against the population and dealing with that? What's your, what's your take on that today? Ooh, it's a good question, Henry. I, how do I say this? I think it was a mixture of a lot of things. I mean, I think you're dead on. I mean, so just to give folks some context, after the first deployment, when we when the unit returned back to 29 Palms in the fall of 2003, we were initially told that we were going on a on a Westpac pump, you know, so that we were going to go to uh, Okinawa, uh, Australia, the Philippines, et cetera. So guys were excited. Like they were told, hey, you the war's won. It's over with. You guys are going to Okinawa. You're going to go have fun and drink and hang out on a ship like Marines used to do in the 80s and 90s or whatever. Um, once that, you know, was quickly sort of thrown out the window within like a month of the unit coming home, morale sank to a low level. I mean, the amount of drug use and alcoholism that existed and violence. I mean, the violence in 29 Palms was something else. I remember just to give an anecdote. Uh, to give people some idea, we had a battalion formation uh, a couple months after the unit returned from our first deployment because two Marines had shotgunned to death two other Marines behind a grocery store in 29 Palms and then set their car on fire because a drug deal went wrong. Um, that was just like one example of the type of shit that was going on around 29 Palms, which for people who don't know, by the way, 29 Palms is almost as uh, horrific as any kind of like combat zone that people could go to. It's like 120 degrees in the summer. It's the middle of the Mojave desert. Uh, and the only good thing is that you're sort of positioned uh, in the middle of this triangle between Tijuana, Las Vegas, and, and Los Angeles. So each place is like a two and a half hour, three hour drive from 29 Palms. That's like the only saving grace of that base. And I think that constant, like from the desert back to the desert, back to the desert, back to the desert, like over and over again, I think sets up like an atmosphere for this kind of stuff as well. Now, when we were overseas, the thing I'll say is that I think you have some Marines that I was, that I served with who were like rabidly xenophobic and Islamophobic. So they were in fact, very interested in killing as many uh, Muslims, uh, as many Iraqis as they could. Uh, on the other hand, that was a small number. Um, the overwhelming number of Marines who ended up committing those type of atrocities, I think we're doing so for the reasons that you mentioned, Henry, and that is guys were upset and you know how it goes. You, you're on a patrol, you get ambushed, you don't get the people who ambushed you. Guys go back to the base, they're upset, they're pissed off and thinking about how they're going to take this out on, you know, after having one of our guys killed, how we're going to retaliate over the next few days. 
And that just quickly spiraled out of control because when there is no oversight, um, I think human beings are capable of any number of things. And that could be like wonderful love and compassion and also really horrific uh, brutalities and atrocities. And, you know, a lot of the guys we were with were taking out their anger and frustration on the Iraqi people. Those of us who spoke up about that were often isolated. Uh, I was given all kinds of shit duties. Uh, for instance, we were in a retransmission site that we used to protect the comm guys. They'd like detach a couple squads to go protect the comm guys overlooking the city. And every day at like 5 to 6 p.m., they would, you know, we would get mortared. It was like a daily thing. that We used to laugh because it was like 5 p.m. It's going to start. And once I started speaking out about things, uh, my platoon sergeant, uh, Sergeant Abernathy, had me start filling sandbags at 5 p.m. So like outside of the bunker, like walking around, like filling sandbags was my job while these uh, mortars were flying at the retrans site. So these were like the moments where I was like, or, you know, hey, you're going to take lead. Hey, you're going to go into the, you know, if we're doing some kind of urban combat, hey, you're going in first. If you're on a patrol, hey, we'll sit you in the back of a high back and you can ride the at the end of the at the uh, patrol or at the end of the convoy. Uh, that kind of bullshit was going on regularly. Uh, so, you know, it's like for me, it was like, oh, wow. So like if I'm speaking out about unethical behavior, behavior that, as you guys know, to the degree that you're trying to accomplish any mission actually undercuts the mission itself. And so for me, it was another sort of slap in the face that like, oh, wow, you guys are supposed to be my brothers. We're in this together. But if I speak out about these things, even like not to the higher ups, just to you guys, like you guys are going to put me in a position where you're trying to get me killed. Uh, that changed my attitude towards a lot of the guys uh, in the unit at that time. Not everyone, but you know, it, it definitely altered the way I was looking at, at that whole experience. Speaking of you, said you mentioned not having any oversight and I just wonder like, so, so what, like, I don't understand how, so somebody goes out and does this and then the people around them don't say anything. So it never gets reported, but like, why can you, can you talk a little bit about why that is like, why do people never say anything after this shit happens? Well, I think there's any number of reasons. I think number one, because a lot of guys were compromised themselves. So in other words, it's hard to say something about something. If you two have also done some really bad things, um, that's number one, I think. And then number two, I think because people saw how, you know, the kind of reaction that I received. So there were, and it wasn't just me, there was like a handful of us that were pretty vocal as the deployment went on. And all five of us were really ostracized from the platoon and given the shittiest duties possible. So again, they're like making examples of us. You know what I mean? It's like, Hey, if you do speak up about this, here's how, here's how we're going to deal with it. Um, which, you know, then quells that, that kind of dissent. It's gross that like the leadership just allows this kind of toxic environment to exist in the name of completing the mission or whatever the fuck. Well, yeah, I, I do think it's disgusting in the same token. However, when you send a bunch of 18, 19 year old kids who've been jacked up on Sylvester Stallone movies <laughs> for the last 20 years overseas and you give them machine guns and carte blanche to do whatever they want. In hindsight, I'm actually surprised that uh, things didn't get worse than they did, to be honest with you. I, uh, in, in, in writing down some of my notes wanting to talk about this subject, I got to thinking about 
what's hap- what happened at the at the Capitol last week, and that much much like being in the service and going going on a deployment, you know, a combat deployment, that all of the people that ended up in Washington that day and all the things that they did that they you know for however many different reasons you know we want to look at them like they're they're less than us that they they their their frustrations about life in america right now um aren't enough to drive someone to do that and they completely are certainly there were people there that wanted to do certain things that they wanted to present a certain um a, a certain validity to everybody being there um but I, I was wondering what you thought about that in terms of that the w- the media right now so desperately wants to nail any of these guys that they can, partly to be on the side that everybody else is right now, but also for for the political reasons. Um, what stuck out to you in in watching what what's happened at the Capitol and the the motivations of uh, of the people there? Motivations. I'll answer that second. But in terms of what happened, look, I'm just to give you guys a heads up. You know, my brother was a former top security uh, official for the Capitol Police. He's been through diplomatic and secret service training now over the last year. So he's actually on Mike Pompeo's security detail. He works for the State Department. Um, he, you know, how do I put this? Look, I think you guys know that when I first saw that, I thought to myself, if there were a crew, say a company size element of 200 or so people within that mob who had weapons, explosives, blueprints, and actually knew what the fuck they were doing, because from what I could see, yes, like some of it was planned and the more and more info that comes out, we're finding out that like it went way deeper than what people think it did um, initially. Um, and so my thinking right away, you know, Sergio and I may live with Sergio. Sergio's a guy, my best friend. We served in the same platoon during the first deployment. Second deployment, he left our platoon and went with the scout snipers. Uh, he was in Huseba at the time that we were in al Qaim. Uh, in any case, um, you know, Sergio and I just thought to ourselves, this could have been a lot, lot worse. Um, and that, that was my initial thought. I mean, my initial thought was if they would have had their shit together, And if you would have had like a company size element of people who were like trained with weapons, with explosives, with a real plan and say that plan was to like go in and there is some evidence coming out that people had the intention of like taking some of these Democrats hostage and perhaps assassinating some of them. You can speak to people like my brother or other people. And, you know, I'm sure Danny's aware of this as well, but like people, people who are in the state apparatus in various institutions will tell you there isn't necessarily a protocol for everything. So it's not like there's like, what do we do if uh, half of Congress is assassinated and the Capitol is taken over? Like nobody, I think it's really naive for people in the U.S. to assume that there would have just been this like really clear cut response and swift and we would have dealt with it and, you know, everything would have just been fine. I don't agree with that. Um, I don't, I don't think that that's true. And I think, um, you know, we came very close to like a really cataclysmic situation in this country for what it would have done for politics, uh, the kind of atmosphere which has already been created post this this event. Um, How do I put this? I don't you know, most of the veterans I know uh, are not on either side of the political aisle. So most of the veterans I know are not, you know, leftists and most of them are not like 
died in the wool sort of MAGA people. I mean, most of the veterans I've spoken to over the last week or so share a lot of the same concerns that I have about what could have happened on Wednesday and how bad it could have been. Uh, and a lot of them are frustrated. You know, a lot of them, of course, are frustrated with the government. They're frustrated with capitalism and corporations and militarism and all this stuff. But they're also not interested in tearing everything down. Um, and I think this is like a big difference here, I think, with a lot of people who are sort of on the sidelines or maybe in the center or just not politically engaged and then people who are politically engaged. So people like my brother who have devoted their entire life to this uh, state apparatus, this nation state project, like they're very concerned and they're also, I think, becoming increasingly politicized. And the concern I have, this is probably an aside, but the concern I have is if the police and military feel as if both sides of the political spectrum are against them, some of the sort of uh, consequences of that could be that police and the military agencies within the state apparatus start to see themselves as their own political entity. Uh, if they look to both sides of the aisle and they see people who are hostile towards them, uh, hostile toward their institutions, what they will do, in my experience and from the people I know who are in those positions, is they're going to rally their people uh, to create some kind of a political entity. That doesn't mean a new party or anything like that. It just means what is their sort of ideological political orientation after an event like last Wednesday? And I think that opens the door for some very troubling, what could be troubling political developments in the coming years. Um, as far as people's motivations, look, I don't think like any group of people that Trump supporters are a homogenous entity. I think there are Trump supporters who are batshit crazy and it doesn't matter what you tell them, uh, they're going to think that there's a pedophile ring that runs the world and the Illuminati controls everything and uh, we're drinking baby's blood on the left or whatever. I mean, those people are nuts. Um, and unfortunately, according to polls, you know, you're looking at maybe a quarter to a third of the Republican Party who fits that sort of caricature. So what we're really looking at is 33% of 74 million people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, the motivations for the people who are doing it look like I don't, I can't say that I have the same sympathy toward them uh, as I do say, you know, veterans who are 18, 19 years old stuck overseas in a war. Um, I, I am, to be quite honest with you, probably finding in some ways that last Wednesday rekindled or kindled uh, a sense of patriotism in me that I haven't felt in some time. And, you know, what does that mean for me? Uh, that means that like when I came up in the anti-war movement, it was a lot of like America sucks type of stuff. It was like, and it was, I mean, for obvious reasons, it's like, fuck, America has been destroying all these countries for all these years and da, 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 overthrowing democratically elected governments. It's uh, hard to feel good about it. It's very hard to feel good about it. Um, but I do think that some of that was very destructive. In other words, I think instead of like, when I look back on the anti-war protests and events that we were participating in during the Bush years and even the early Obama years, it probably would have made sense for us to try and take over some of the symbolism, affects and images of like Americana instead of like sort of retreating from that space and allowing the right to just have it. And then for us to be like running around American streets with like pictures of Karl Marx or red and black flags, which have no absolutely no resonance with people in the United States who didn't live through the 1880s or the 1930s. Um, and, you know, I found a lot of that stuff 
problematic. And I think it's the same today. Uh, the response that I've seen from the left uh, to this latest incident, I don't think has been helpful. Like, I don't think, you know, I've heard people say things like, why should we defend the bourgeois state? You know, it's like, I, if you talk to ordinary Americans, they are freaked the fuck out right now. So, you know, I just got off the phone call. We had a call list of about 250 people for a rally that we're holding on, on Sunday. And, you know, I spent from 9 a.m. until this call, just calling through the call list. And, you know, people are at home. They're scared. They're isolated. They don't know what to think. They're worried. Uh, they don't know who to trust. They're disempowered. Uh, and, you know, the, the response I've received from those type of people is a lot different than some of the left commentary I've heard about this, this latest, uh, you know, event that took place on Wednesday. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think would be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Jason, Zach H., Ren Jacob, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. I don't know. What do you guys think of this? I mean, I'm interested. I'm interested to get, yeah. Like have a dialogue particularly about this. I, uh, there were a lot of dangerous things and a lot of dangerous people that participated in this. And I I don't mean to minimize that in the least. I watched a democracy now segment this morning, talking about the proud boys, the boogaloos, the oath keepers, the three percenters that all, all of these groups played some role in that. And I, I don't, I don't take that, 
lightly in the least, but what has happened and, and it, it, it hap it's happened over the duration of the Trump presidency, but it's, it's not new in the least, is the disparagement of anybody who wants to anybody who wants to follow Trump and uh, believing that they are a monolith. That, they, that, that we really can mm -hmm. define exactly who they are. And uh, Steve from Slow News Day, I was watching a, a stream of his yesterday, and he mentioned about being on his, the plane ride home from him returning from the Assange events from in D.C. back to California where he lives. And he, you know, sat next to some of these guys that were, I don't, I don't know if they fully participated or were just there, but, you know, Trump supporters who were, were at or near the event and that they knew on a, a very visceral level that they had been used that they that they their uh their patriotism their love for their country their desire to see trump win that it you know it wasn't just about what they wanted it was about the the media narratives that they follow and being sucked into that without really understanding it um but no, my, my main concern is that, you know, and I saw this in an article that you wrote actually on Counterpunched about us talking to Trump supporters about that, that in terms of organizing that, you know, the, the, the activist left is activists, but in terms of the actual hardened organizing that they do, that it's, it's just, it's just not the same thing. And it is something that most people don't even understand the difference between. Um, but I, I, I. I can't say that I have empathy for the for the guys that participated in this, especially the ones that caused actual violence to people, participated in in some of the deaths that occurred. But I don't want I don't want that to become a reason to not talk to those people, and that's what the left is increasingly turning towards these days. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I mean, I don't know if anybody, any three of you guys have read Kathleen Ballou's book, Bring the War Home, uh, about the history of the white power movement. But it's, uh, in my opinion, the book that everybody in America should be reading right now. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago, but I'm rereading it again just to make sure I'm up to date on everything. But the development of the white power movement in the United States is something to examine. Um this, in other words, didn't take place in a vacuum, and it's been 45 years in building, and veterans play a key role in that movement. So what Kathleen does, of course, is go back and tie the rise of like white supremacist organizations and uh, their increasing membership to like post-war veteran involvement. So in other words, the KKK sees an increase of involvement uh, from veterans and more membership following the Civil War, following World War One, and then again following World War II, where there was like this divide in the white power movement. You had all of these white veterans who had just fought Nazis and they felt very, un even though they hated blacks and Jews and everyone else, they, f they felt very isolated um, by the, the sort of neo-Nazi brand of white supremacists in the United States. And again, even the white power movement, as Kathleen points out, is not a homogenous entity. So there was like this divide in the post-World War II period between neo-Nazis on the one hand uh, and then the KKK and various other groups. Post-Vietnam, uh, this starts to sort of mold into what we now consider the current uh, white power movement. And there's also a political shift at that time. So like right at the time that the left is being destroyed by internal divisions uh, and uh, government surveillance and infiltration. So now we're thinking like late 19, mid to late 1970s, early 1980s 
is right at the time when the white power movement decides to like put away all of their sectarian differences and kind of band together under one banner. So you have the extreme right coming together at a time when the extreme left is really falling apart. Um, this, of course, builds up throughout the 1980s, where veterans uh, were operating as mercenary personnel in Central America, uh, in, the, in the Caribbean, in Rhodesia, uh, training, arming, and supplying right-wing forces uh, throughout the world. Uh, these were a lot of former vets and a lot of former Vietnam vets uh, who were extremely angry when they came home and who had developed an ideology of essentially destroying the state. So, you know, it's originally uh, the KKK was sort of this force that was able to like enforce the authority of the state. You know, it was like the militarized civilian arm of the state apparatus. In the 1980s, this takes a big turn, you know, where the right, the extreme right and the white power movement starts to get involved with more mainstream organizations, but also decides that their number one political goal is to destroy the state apparatus itself. And so then you see, of course, things, you know, throughout the 1990s from Ruby Ridge to Waco to then uh, the biggest mass casualty event in between 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, Oklahoma City. Uh, and since the Turner then, Diaries. right, Turner Diaries, Lewis Beam and all the rest. So this is like, if we don't put this into a proper context, I think it's hard to understand what just happened on Wednesday. So for me, thinking about it contextually, this was the buildup. This was like the biggest action outside of the Oklahoma City bombing that the white power movement has been able to participate in in 45 years. And these are precisely the type of events that the white power movement has been writing about for 45 years. That how do we take advantage of a, a state apparatus that's increasingly fragmented and out of touch with ordinary people? And how do we do this in moments of crises that will make people even have less and less faith in the state and kind of whittle away some of that, um, you know, trust and, and solidarity that people might feel to like the government project? Uh, and they'll use this as a recruiting event. So, you know, the white power groups right now are using footage from last Wednesday uh, the same way that ISIS would or any other group and saying, hey, like you're young, you're pissed off, you're alienated, you're isolated. Come with us like it's exciting. We'll teach you how to do, you know, uh, paramilitary uh, training or whatever it is like this functions in much of the same way. So. I, I'm sorry for rambling about that, but this this topic and how it fits contextually within the development of the white power movement post-Vietnam to me is like one of the more fascinating sort of strains of how to approach what, what happened last Wednesday. I've been seeing it a lot. Like the like a lot of initially a lot of the reaction from Trump supporters was, oh, it was Antifa, it was BLM, you know, the normal bullshit boogeyman. But the Nazis have come out and been like, no, it was us. It was us. We did it. And you should join us. And like, yep. they're using this like full blast to be like, this is a big thing that we did and we're a part of. And if you want to be a part of more of this, come join us. And, you know, it's gonna, it's, it pisses me off that we have politicians who are wanting to sweep this under the rug and just, you know, pretend like it never happened because the only way that we enable fascism is by appeasing it. And that's what we've done over and over and over again. And throughout the last 45 years, Kagan, so what Baloo points yeah. out in her book is you can see, you know, these individuals have been let off by law enforcement and let off by the courts over and over right. and over again. Look at the guy in Nashville. Now, his girlfriend called the FBI and told the FBI, 
my former boyfriend, I'm sorry, his ex-girlfriend, my former boyfriend is making bombs in his house and he's going to use them. So this guy had been on the FBI's radar um, for any number of uh, months and years prior to him, uh, you know, blowing himself up, suicide bombing himself in downtown Nashville. So then the question becomes sort of the same question that we have with the event on last Wednesday. How many people within the ranks of these agencies are, you know, beholden to these kind of like white power ideologies or connected with these these movements? And how much of this is just like bureaucratic incompetence? I mean, as we all understand, no matter how much money or resources you throw at these institutions, if they're not like functioning well, uh, it doesn't matter how much money or people you give it. Um, so, yes, as a response, Henry, to, to get to your point as well, let's push back against any further militarization, any kind of further terrorism laws and stuff like that to me seems like a very principled position. But it also seems to me that a very principled position is that the, the law as it stands today should be applied uh, to these people. Uh, and that they shouldn't just skate by uh, because these white power activists, as Kagan is saying, uh, they've been skating by with slaps on the wrist for 45 years. And this is, of course, why they feel emboldened enough to take over the Capitol. And honestly, like to me, it all just goes to the idea of accountability. Like we have to really understand what that means. And if we want to crush fascism at, at this point, the only way that we can do that is by holding everyone accountable. And yep. I mean, we have to, like, I've been trying to, you know, sound the alarm and I know other people have for a while, but it's like, you know, we need, we need a new Nuremberg, like for a lot of stuff that we've done in America, but especially for right now, just to like, to get all this stuff out into the open. And so there isn't any confusion. There isn't any misinformation. It's just, Hey, like, here's what's happening. And we can show you the evidence. And I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what else is going to help us get like really try to like nip this where it is. If we to don't. me to me, Kagan, this gets back to like the left posture towards the state. One of the problems that I've seen and, you know, I'm going on now, I think whatever it is, 15, 16 years of being involved with left movements. And one of the problems that we've faced over time is that we've never really had a coherent position vis-a-vis -vis the state. And there's for obvious reasons. You know, we've got anarcho-leftists and socialists and liberals and all kinds of people who have a different conception of what the state should be or whether it should exist at all. I've sort of come to the conclusion at this point in my life with 350 million people in this country and 7.8 billion people around the world that we will have um, institutions, whether that's called the state or whether we call it something else, there will be big institutions that have to, I think, manage complex societies. That doesn't mean they have to be overtly authoritarian. That doesn't mean they have to be uh, extremely hierarchical or oppressive. It just means that we're no longer living in 1810. You know, we're no longer living in uh, the 1730s. Like this idea that people are just going to be able to kind of go do whatever they want and somehow collectively egalitarian in some kind of egalitarian, non-hierarchical, horizontal fashion, everybody's just going to kind of come together and collectively decide what we're, you know, what makes sense, what's just, what's unjust. I, I don't necessarily believe that. Uh, and that's right. not really my politics at this point. So I think one of the problems we have is that we are hoping that a state apparatus that's been run by neoliberal Democrats, uh, neoconservative Republicans, who have totally undercut trust uh, for any number of reasons, you know, uh, 
bailing out Wall Street, allowing poor and working class people to suffer, sending their kids to bullshit wars. The problem we face is we're hoping that a very dysfunctional state apparatus will hold these people accountable uh, instead of, of course, I think what would be the better left position, which would be, hey, do do we want to take the helm or no? So in other words, for me, the question to the left is, are we happy being on the outside, speaking truth to power, um, taking the moral high ground, so on and so forth? So it's like that permanent kind of dissident position. Or is it that we have a left in the United States that actually wants to run a society and run a nation state? That doesn't mean dominate. That doesn't mean dictate. It just means, do we want to actually be in the levers of power? Like, And if we are, if, if in fact we do take over the state, however that may happen, through some combination of uh, extra para, uh, parliamentary forces, which could be like anything from strikes to nonviolent civil disobedience to whatever else, through elections, through any number of, of ways that we would do that, if indeed we do take over the state, how do we plan to administer it? So in other words, is it that we just abolish police forces and prisons and the FBI tomorrow? Or is it that we might need some kind of investigative body uh, in the state apparatus that would look at white power groups or other uh, entities, you know, that would maybe try and undercut the project? So I would say this to my Bernie friends, like I'll end sort of by saying that I would often ask my friends, because I've worked on the Bernie campaign as well, not officially, but we volunteered and so forth. And I remember asking my friends in the Bernie campaign, hey, if Bernie wins, do you not think that there's going to be counter-revolutionary forces? And they, you know, people would just kind of be like, well, what do you mean? They'd be like, well, (laughs) what do you think capital is going to do if Bernie wins? You're going to see capital strikes, number one. Number two, how do you think this... So in other words, can you guys have a can you guys even imagine how much more rabid that would have been on Wednesday if Bernie Sanders was the president elect can you imagine the kind of drummed up uh anti-communist craziness that would have led to the last week and what that could have looked like I mean to me it's like if and that's like Bernie who we know isn't like some really crazy radical he's just like a social democrat who wants to implement new deal era policies with like a little more woke racial policies like it's it's not that crazy. I mean, of course, we know the plot to overthrow uh, FDR. So it's like there's a history of this. There's a history of fascistic movements in the United States. There's also a history of these white power movements who operate outside of and within the state apparatus. And, and you know, I think if we're serious as the left, like if we want ordinary people to take us seriously, I think we actually need a vision for how we administer the state and like what it looks like to actually keep people safe. Um, and again, I'm not worried about like, you know, I'm not asking for more police on our streets or anything goofy like that, but it's like, there is a real immature position the left has taken towards things like prisons. And I think even the police, you know, we've gotten into big debates with some of our friends in black lives matter, uh, trying to explain to them that abolishing the police polls at 13% among black people. So you know, there's a profound disconnect between left discourse and left ideology where it stands today, mostly in the online left. And then if you actually go into like poor and working class communities and talk to people, most of the black people in our communities, I live in a city that's one third black. Most of the black cats in our city are like, we want more cops. So that that doesn't mean that we acquiesce to that. It just means that that opens up a conversation that's a lot more nuanced and contradictory, excuse me, and difficult than I think a lot of left uh, activists uh, presume, you know? Yeah. Oh, I was watching an interview with some guys that they have this really awesome community group 
where they go around and they try to defuse situations and it's it's just a bunch of guys who were former gang uh, members themselves and they just try to go out there and like help people resolve things in a better way and and they're saying they're like look like maybe in the suburbs you guys don't need cops but like we still like even with everything that we're doing here we still need that support like we will still need that for a while because there's only so much that you can do when you're going up against a lot of force. Oh, we had just since the pandemic, we've had more homicides in Michigan city, a city of 30,000 people where I think last year there was like 50 people shot and killed. Um, you know, that's a lot of people. It's like off the charts and it, we've had more homicides over the last 10 months than we've had over the last two years and people are freaked out. So to your point, Kagan, like, some people live in areas, especially a lot of the left. So like left commentators, media personalities, like a lot of people who have a voice, you'll ask like, oh, where's this person from? Oh, they live in Brooklyn. It's like, where does this person live? Oh, they live in Brooklyn too. It's like, oh, where does this person live? They live in the Bay Area or they live in Washington, D.C. or Seattle. And it's like, man, there is a big country out there and there are some rough fucking neighborhoods. I mean, our town is kind of rough. I mean, I consider it a rough place, but like real rough places like Gary, Indiana, which is 20 miles yeah. to the west of us like in those communities man like there's no fucking black people who are asking people to abolish the police and furthermore even the more reasonable suggestion which i actually think makes sense uh depending on where you're located defund the police for areas like ours municipalities who've been gutted by neoliberalism we don't have any money to shift around so that demand even though it was more reasonable than abolish the police fell on deaf ears here in a place like Michigan City or Gary, Indiana or Benton Harbor, Michigan or South Bend, Indiana, because you look at the city budget and you go, well, wait a minute, there's no money to shift around here. Um, you know, that that is a problem because in New York, there's plenty of money to shift around. But if you try and translate that demand down to like the regional local level in a place like Michigan City, it means absolutely nothing because we don't have a budget. Uh, to move around at all. And our police officers, to be honest with you, are already making like shit wages. They don't have the greatest benefits and they're overworked, which, as you guys also know, from being in the military creates a problem because if you have overworked, understaffed, underpaid police officers, they will take out that frustration on the people that they are policing. Um, mm -hmm. So this to me is, again, like why it made sense to me. Bernie's response to this made a lot of like political sense, um, which was. Yes, there needs to be major reforms. Yes, we need to demilitarize. However, we are going to still have police officers. They are mostly working class people. What do you want to do with them? Like, do you want to pay them decently? Because the other thing is, is that like the cops in Michigan City or Gary, Indiana, shit, 30, 40, 50 percent of our police force is black. In Gary, Indiana, 90 percent of the police force is black. Like none of those individuals have connections with white power groups or right wing groups. Like they're just like working class dudes who grew up in Gary and were like, I want to do something good for the community. And this is a nice city job that can, you know, I can stay here and live around my family. And like, I, I just think it's really, there's a lot of nuance here. And I think it would be who of us on the left to actually try and make connections with people in the military and police, instead of driving them either to the right, further to the right, or uh, as I mentioned earlier, that I'm increasingly concerned that they're going to kind of see themselves as their own political entity detached from both political parties and both, you know, sides of the ideological spectrum. And that in and of itself can be a very dangerous situation, you know, for people who are interested in a, living in a constitutional republic or in a quasi-democracy, 
we don't need the militarized arm of the state to start to see itself as a separate political entity. No, no. I mean, we, we've seen the history of that borne out time and time again. You know, how bad that is when that happens. Yeah, 100 percent. And just to answer your question, Henry, I'm sorry, because I don't think I got to it. But the point about Trump supporters not being a homogenous entity, it gets to the organizing question. So in other words, I think when a lot of people think about organizing, they think, oh, you sit in a room with people and you basically debate issues. Uh, And that is like the last thing that I want people to think of when they think of organizing. So when I wrote that article and I need to write a follow up because I've gotten an influx of like, hey, asshole, I thought you said we were supposed to support Trump supporters. It's like or supposed to organize Trump supporters. And it's like you really have to talk about the the nuances here. So on the one hand, um, not every Trump supporter can be organized, but let's say you live where I live. We're currently engaged in a tenant rights, tenant union. We're trying to create a tenants union at the, uh, well, I'm not going to say this publicly because we don't want it out there publicly. So it's at a local housing complex here in Michigan City, apartment complex, um, probably 80, 85% black, but also a lot of like working class, poor whites live there as well. Now, in order to get, say you want to do a rent strike uh, and they want to Uh, do a rent strike against their particular landlord, which is like a company that owns many, many units throughout the state. In order to do that, you need at least 80 to 95% buy-in from the tenants. So this is the same as if you're doing like a workplace uh, strike. If you're going to strike on the shop floor, what you're looking for is anywhere from 80 to 95% buy-in, meaning 80 to 95% of the people on that shop floor will walk out the day that they're supposed to walk out. Um, And if you don't have that buy-in, Uh, the chances of your strike being successful are slim to none. It's the same in a rent strike. So a lot of people will just like put stuff online and they'll be like, hey, we're going to do a rent strike or this or that. And, you know, it's really unhelpful because the kind of work that goes into building up uh, the confidence and accountability and structure that's needed for those tenants to feel like they can trust each other, you know, for those tenants to feel like, hey, when Jill and Lindsay and Bob walk out or don't pay their rent, I'm doing it as well. And I know that they're going to do the same thing. That takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And if you need 80 to 95% of your structure to go on strike, whether that be a labor strike or say a rent strike, that by default means you're going to talk to Trump supporters. Um, What that looks like to me is focusing on the issues that those Trump supporters might have in their apartment complex. So it's not talking to them about QAnon or abortion rights or gay marriage or any of these other sort of issues that get people fired up. It's like, Hey, what are the three things in your apartment complex that you would like to change? If you could, if you could be King of this apartment complex, what are the three things you would change tomorrow? You knock on 150 doors, ask that same question until you get 150 responses, see what the overlap is and the responses take the top two or three issues back to the people at their doors and say, Hey, Joe, you live here. There's four people on your same unit over here who feel the same way. They also mentioned that these two issues are like their number top two issues at the apartment complex that they would like to see changed. Are you willing to come to a meeting on Sunday to talk about those two issues? Yeah, I'll be there. That that's like at the most granular level, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, organizing Trump supporters, it's not like, I hope that's clear because I think some people read that or some people hear me say this and they think, Oh, so we just kind of go door to door anywhere, 
with no sort of boundaries or structure of what you're trying to accomplish, or we just show up to like the young Republicans meeting and get in a debate with them. And that's what we consider reaching out to Trump supporters. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's kind of like what people have in mind when they think about this. And oh, I really, no. you know, not you of course, but I'm just saying like, yeah, you know, no, I, I, uh... I really want people to like be clear about like, this is what it means to like what we're talking about organizing Trump supporters. Yes. You have to get, you have to get, just talk to people and then understand the areas that overlap, which are always the same things, right? Everybody in America wants to feel safe. They want to feel stable financially and, you know, morally and, and economically and everything. And they want to feel like there's some potential for a future. Like every single human being wants those things. And when you talk to people in that language, it comes across. It does. And when you can tie it to their immediate material interest. Yeah. And yeah, this if will we benefit tie... you right now if we do this. Yep. And if they see it. And that's the other part, man. I mean, what we've noticed is if people can see even those small victories, and I know it's such a cliche, but <laughs> I, I do think that it's very important because it gives people the confidence that they can do more. Um, and it also gives them a sense of like, hey, I work together with this person and we talked about these two issues. Nah, through that experience, we learned that there's only so much you can do as a tenant uh, union here in Michigan City. It turns out we actually have to change state law in order for there to be significant reforms for uh, renters in the state of Indiana. So that like all comes up throughout the course of doing like a small campaign on a smaller issue. You can always broaden it out. You know, like during those conversations, people might say, why in the hell don't we have money for housing in the state? And we say, well, hey, have you ever looked at the military budget? Have you ever thought about the kind of corporate tax breaks that we give away in the state of Indiana. Like those things can come up. It's just like badgering someone right away with them uh, is not the way to do it. And if you can connect it to their issue, I mean, I've found that a lot of people are you know, more than willing to accept that and say, yeah, we actually do spend way too much money on the military. Like it's almost a sort of very easy issue to broach when you're doing it in a way that's connected directly to their material interests. But if you're doing it just like rhetorically or ideologically, I haven't found it uh, very helpful. So, Vince, I something that you brought up twice that that I've been kind of wanting to jump in on, and I, and I think we'll kind of, uh, at least for now, I think we have to do it. We should, we're gonna have to do like a recurring series here uh, with you because there's so many areas that I want personally, even I want to cover it. But the other guys have the same. But you brought up like the kind of veteran and police component, and some of like the tenuousness of it, and the concerning possibilities. And, and one thing that j had jumped out at me, and this always happens, I'm sure it happens to you too, right? You get kind of typecast as like the veteran voice, you know? Right. So after the Capitol, just MAGA madness, I got a bunch of, you know, interview requests and like solicitations for articles like, all right, well, there was some veterans there. So now you need to write about this. And, and I think that, you know, there's, there's a story there, but I'm just not sure that it's the story that most media thinks it is or is looking for from someone like me or probably someone like you or any of us. Right. And so as I was just, you know, starting some of my research, what kind of jumped out at me is like, okay, you know, there, there were, I mean, there were vets on the ground and, uh, and some of them were, you know, Ashley Babbitt, you know, she's like a, a gate guard in the air force. Right. Uh, you got that air force, maybe Lieutenant Colonel who gets fired from a civilian job. And some of them are like politicians at like the state level, like, you know, Doug Mastriano, who's like a, you know, a former state senator or a current state senator. He was a retired colonel who taught at the War College. This guy, Richard Saccone, is also from Pennsylvania's house. 
you know, and, and he was involved with like counter intel and was an intelligence uh, interrogation consultant. And upgrade. Okay, all that's there, right? There were veterans in the group. But I guess my question is, sometimes do we just, do we lump all veterans together sometimes, or does the media do this regardless of what their individual job was, what their individual experience was? Do they then sort of like jump to certain conclusions about a veteran angle to the story? So that's kind of like the two lead questions. And then I was hoping maybe you can kind of close out a bit with what I think is the commonality, because veterans, as I think you're going to kind of mention again, they're not a monolith. They're, they're very diverse. They're not one thing. They're as divided in some ways as the American people. But I get the sense, and tell me if I'm right, and then maybe you can close it with a sense of like fears and hopes moving forward to the extent that there are any. The one thing that I see that is common is a tendency among many, if not most, at least a lot, to see themselves as like a separate tribe. And that applies, I think, as well to the police. And, and you kind of touched on this, where a lot of your former buddies and you know colleagues, and I know mine, find themselves, if not quite apathetic, uh, distant from both like the DNC and the RNC kind of world, and even from Trump. And so they're this like separate thing. They're like a tribe. They're like a cast. And that's a cliche too, but I can't help but wonder if maybe to the extent that there is a commonality, it's that almost vague self-righteousness or sense of alone and otherness. So I guess what I'm saying is, how have you found the reporting on, you know, veteran angles to stories like this? And then what are your kind of fears and potential hopes or progress moving forward for vets as we close out? And that's probably a podcast worth of was... answer, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, uh, but, you know, you can keep it short because I think we all have a million other jobs apparently than just bullshitting. But I couldn't help but jump on that when you said it. I've been like making little notes ever since. So, yeah. Thanks for feeling. Yeah. No, good God. That's such a good question. It's a series of good, quite really good questions that I would love to get into another conversation with you guys. Um, look, the thing I'll say is I immediately rejected it coming home because there was the myth of the hard bodied hero in the Bush era that like I was supposed to come home and be proud that I fought for the war and all this type of stuff. And I really rejected that. And I always felt conflicted because with IVAW, we were at one time trying to like demythologize the veteran experience, but at the same time using our veteran street cred to like get on TV and like get into these different institutions and have influence. And I think that was just the right thing to do. I don't think there's like a clear answer there. I think it's really tough. Like we're walking, we're trying to thread the needle between providing a critique, excuse me, and then also at the same time uh, using our status in a way that's productive. I've been thinking this might not answer those questions, Danny, but I, through rereading Baloo's book, I'm reminded, and I was reminded of this back in the day when I first got involved with politics, reading about SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the South uh, that was doing just amazing organizing work in the early civil rights era. And many of those people were veterans. So if you look back in the American experience, it seems to me that there's going to always be a battle for who, like, who can claim that mantle? So at the same time that you have veterans coming home from World War I, uh, joining the KKK, and then the KKK reaching its really high point in 1924, 1925, with like four or five million members nationwide, at that same time, you have a series of veterans coming home from World War I who are organizing in the steel mills. They're working with the IWW. They're working with the Communist Party. And they play key roles within each of those institutions. And this happens following every war. I mean, same with World War II. 
You have World War II veterans who come back. They take up the mantle of conservatism and sort of like maintaining segregation. And they play a key role in right-wing movements and in right-wing political parties, often leadership roles. And it's the same on the left. So you have veterans taking on leadership roles within the civil rights movement. You have veterans taking on leadership roles within the anti-war movement. You have veterans taking on leadership roles within the Black Power movement. If you look at the roster of Black Panthers and the positions that they held at those times, disproportionately veterans in leadership positions. Um, to me, we're sort of still battling that today. It's like, what is the mantle? Who gets to define what this veteran experience is in the post 9-11 world? Is it that the boogaloo proud boy kind of like right wing type of veterans are going to be the ones that are like identified as like, this is the homage, the, uh, uh, hegemonic, uh, sort of veteran identity right now. Or is it that we also have a ton of progressive and left-wing veterans who are also involved with organizations and like that interplay, uh, to me stretches back throughout American history and it, it, in different times, in different periods, in different geographical regions, it seems to change, you know, like where veterans are seen as these like this progressive entity that plays a significant role in the labor movement all the way to, you know, the point that Kathleen Ballou is making in her book that veterans play a key component in the post-Vietnam white power movement. Um, and obviously seen with things like Timothy McVeigh or stuff that happened last Wednesday. I, that's like a roundabout way of not giving a real clear answer. It's just to, I guess, pose what I think are sort of interesting strains of history that we're still dealing with today. Um, so I'm sorry if that's not like a very concise way to respond to that, but I, it makes me think a lot about history and it makes me think a lot about how what has happened on Wednesday uh, is not an aberration. It fully fits in line with the American experience and the growth of, of right-wing movements in the U S and the role veterans have played on both right-wing and the left-wing uh, in leadership positions in both cases. Um, I don't know if we can get away from it. In other words, it's like today, I don't try to use my veteran status too much, but I can see after Wednesday uh, that it might be beneficial to do so if it's done so in a way uh, that's thoughtful, uh, that's critical. Uh, I think that's what we have to do. I don't think there's, I, I went through a period of totally rejecting it and I went through a period of like really like owning it. And I'm in a position now in my life at 36 years old after doing this work for a while of being like trying to carve out a space in the middle where we're not overly glorifying veterans in this experience, but also understanding that this isn't just some kind of like propagandistic ideological creation, that this there's like a real material historical reality to the role that veterans have played in political movements in this country. Well, no, I, I actually totally kind of respect that injection of nuance and history, obviously. Uh, and, and I think it's important. I think it's missed oftentimes uh, the extent to which it's on both sides. Uh, and, and I, and I do think that, you know, I had talked to uh, name dropping here. I, I had talked to Kevin Tillman, Pat Tillman's brother the other day, and I don't want to get into too much detail about it, but uh, well, it's same project that you're on this, uh, you know, uh, kind of military descent book project. And, and he made a comment, you know, in our, conversation basically saying like hey look like m a lot of military folks have like it or not positive or not like some sort of like leadership uh either ability or self-styled ability that the same things that kind of oftentimes brought them into the military bring them into different movements and so there's like an inevitability that you're sort of mentioning here of like that's gonna be 
see the world as it is. And then, uh, you know, I, I've rejected at certain points too, and gone back and forth on that. But the reason I think uh, it's not the reason, but I'll act like it's the reason that I asked the question is because I think that we really uh, now we have to take you back. Now you have to come back on the show. Cause I think we need to do kind of like, a focus on just this general issue that's a little bit more teased out because I, I think that you'd be a great person to talk to about it because you've thought deeply and, and studied it a bit and, uh, and you don't get that a lot. So I think that's perfect. Uh, unless we want to do a three and a half hour pod, which I don't think anybody's <laughs> capable of doing today. You know what I mean? Hey, just emotionally, not in 2021, I, uh, you know, <laughs> I really appreciate your guys's time and I hope I didn't ramble too much. I felt like I talked a lot during this one. So I apologize if I was rambling on. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm like a pot kettle person when it comes to any long responses. Uh, <laughs> I felt really good about the fact that I didn't like take over today. Kagan, Henry, come on. I, I need a lot of positive reinforcement. I'm a white American male. And so <laughs> you guys can provide that for me after the show. Uh, on the air is better, but I'll deal with it. But no, uh, Vince, we will I'm let you impressed. go. Yeah, we will, we will let you go. Uh, this was awesome. Uh, and, Thank you and so much, talk. Vince. Yeah, we'll talk more after this about, you know, kind of maybe some follow on stuff and uh, just just happy to work with you in a bunch of different areas. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, dude, it's my pleasure. And it's been really cool, even though it's been virtual to get to know you, man. I have a lot of respect for what you're doing. And like I told you before, anything that uh, any project you're a part of, I know it's a worthwhile project. So, like, I'm down and Kagan and Henry. Good rapping with you cats. And I hope at some point we can like actually all get together and have a beer and a smoke and just chill out. I think it would be great. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Thanks so much, Vince. Absolutely. Sooner than later. Oh, Vince, real quick before you go, uh, tell people where to, uh, I know you, you didn't want to do this in the Assange call, which I had a lot of respect for, but uh, tell people where to go to find, uh, you know, your, your, your kind of pod and anything else you might be doing. Absolutely. So we opened, uh, the quick way to say it is we opened a community cultural center in 2016 following the election of Donald Trump to use it as an organizing hub here in Michigan City, but also as a cultural social space. It's been open for the last four years. We did any number of activities here from organizing workshops to conducting local campaigns, art installations, poetry slams, live music events, soup kitchens, clothing drives, a number of things, documentary film screenings and all the rest. So we use this space for the last four years it's been temporarily closed since the beginning of uh, COVID. And as a result, Sergio and I started a podcast and YouTube program called Park Media that you can access at parkmedia.org. You could also check us out on Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture. Um, and we've been you know, doing three, four interviews a week uh, to raise money to keep the doors open for the space. So we have reached our goal, our initial goal. Uh, the lights are on, the doors are open indefinitely at parks. So no matter how long the pandemic lasts, when it is over, we will continue to have a community space here. So by supporting the podcast, you are not just supporting like Sergio and I. Uh, in fact, none of that money goes to him or I. The money goes to maintaining this space so we have it once the pandemic is over. So yeah, check us out, uh, parkmedia.org. And you can check us out on YouTube at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, Media. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, and thanks so much for letting people know and, and do check it out. Uh, you know, I, having been on the show 
and not even really dug into everything else you're doing, which I'm sure the show's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it, it's really awesome. We've had some great guests. And uh, one last time, Vince, thank you. And we will be in touch soon because, I mean, I don't know. we got like a million things we're doing together. So Hell yeah, uh, man. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. And thanks again for doing this. And uh, Henry hopped off, but he sends his regards via the medium of text, which isn't as good as smoke signals, but it'll have to do. <laughs> All right. Take care. Danny Kagan, right. good talking with you guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you next time and listen to my song i hope you'll pay attention i will not